the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. And welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts, and today we're delighted to be talking to Diana Henry. Diana is one of our most prolific and critically acclaimed food writers. She is the Telegraph's cookery writer, has written 12 cookbooks, and has won a host of awards, including the James Beard Award for her chicken cookbook, A Bird in the Hand. Most recently, Roast Figs, Sugar, Snow, Food to Warm the Soul, an irresistible collection of cold weather cooking from around the world, has been updated and reissued 20 years after it was first published. Diana, welcome to Table Talk. Lovely to be able to talk to you. Diana, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? They sound quite sweet, actually. The first thing I remember doing is making myself where um, butterfly buns, that kind of thing, fairy cakes. But my the first thing I can remember eating was we had a really little galley kitchen and I was set up on the counter and my mum was making wheat and bread, which is what you call brown soda bread in Northern Ireland. And she cut me a slice. It was still very crumbly because it was warm. And she put butter on it and then she put raspberry jam on it, which was made by one of my aunts. And it was so runny, it was dripping off the sides. And um, Peter and the Wolf was on in the background. I had to have that again and again and again. And it sounds sort of very idyllic. And I think food was a positive thing in my upbringing. But that was kind of, I don't want to sound too cute because it it wasn't really. It was very practical. And my mum cooked every day from scratch simply because that's what you did. And was she a good cook? Did you appreciate her as a good cook when you were yes. growing up with her? She was a fantastic cook, actually, and she's now too old and has kind of thrown out, or she's getting rid of all her kitchen stuff because she's moving house, and all her baking equipment is coming to me in a big box. That will be funny. What are you, what are you getting? Um, oh, it'll all be her kind of like the little tins, and they're really old that she made mince pies in, so little patty tins lots of baking sheets, loads of cake tins. I mean, I remember nearly all the time the mixer was whirring. She was always, she wasn't, the mixer sounds very kind of like old fashioned and a bit, what we say in Northern Ireland, a bit dootsy, a bit kind of plain Jane. But she was, she was very kind of like striking and glamorous actually. But she was very involved as lots of people are in Northern Ireland in church things. So she'd be making cakes for bring and buy sales, or for school sales. I mean, it's the kind of thing now, if you're asked to do, you do that thing that um, that people do in those kind of like books where they say, you, you can't do everything. So just buy some apple tarts, wash the tops so that it looks homemade, dip with some icing sugar and shove them out. And I have to say, I've been tempted to do that myself sometimes because, well, because I have a job. Um, <laughs> but she, she did lots of that. So we're surrounded by food in a way. And my dad, he really loves it as well. He's got, he, he died a few years ago, but that was one of his great pleasures. And he was really a pleasure to cook for him as well because he liked things so much. And our food was very, very seasonal because that's all you could get. I mean, there's always talk about 
Oh, she'd been to the Green Grocers with Mitchell, who we went to, you know, for decades. Um, she'd come back and say, oh, such and such a potato was then now. Or the apples from County Armagh, or this type or that type. And that was just normal conversation, to be honest. I mean, nobody would think she was a foodie in terms of what that means now. But it was simply, um, it was normal. And what were mealtimes like when you were growing up? What was the scene? When I was younger, uh, Sunday lunch was the, the best meal of the week. And we had to have that on the good dining table and get out the Waterford crystal glasses. And we had normally roast beef. So it was a major deal. Uh, we didn't have Yorkshire pudding because it wasn't a thing. I didn't even eat it till I came to England. And that was, we just loved that food. There were about five kind of vegetable dishes on the side. That's the way it was, including cauliflower cheese. Had to be cauliflower cheese. And then for pudding, we would have, this is quite a new thing at the time, it was in the 70s, we'd be allowed to have sorbet, lemon sorbet. And when she took the carton of that out, we'd be like, my God, we thought we were really posh. And we didn't have wine, but we had schlur poured into the wine glasses. And that also made us feel we were really quite chic. <laughs> But later on, it became quite a battleground. When I was in, in my teens, the table was where arguments took place and they could be quite fierce. Mostly they were about politics. Quite often there would be tears. Uh, and the food was good, but yes, it was a place of conflict. And my siblings would say to me, just drop it, Diana. Just, just don't go on about this. And I don't know what it is about my father, but some of his views were outrageously right-wing, I think. And um, I couldn't argue on my own part, but I could argue on the part of other people, if that makes sense, if I felt he had notions that were unjust about how people live or how people are. So it wasn't happy places when I was a teenager, no. What do you think about our tendency in food writing, particularly in cookery writing, to romanticise that idea of, of sharing food and sitting around a table together? I think it's awful. Um, I remember saying to the Telegraph one year, they asked me to do a Boxing Day piece. And I basically was about what it was like, which is, you know, my Boxing Day, the house was too warm, the plants were wilting, there was just kind of empty tubs of sweets everywhere. And I had this awful feeling because my grandparents left on the morning of Boxing Day, the Christmas was over and they were going home. I mean, my dad wasn't a massive lover of Christmas. My mother actually ate of it and I think we don't say enough how bad things are I mean I told the Telegraph that I wanted to they tried to change it and I said I want to keep it but it didn't go through in the end and I said to Amy my editor I will never write an untrue word about food again mm. just telling you I'm not I mean some things about food are wonderful and I have many happy memories of good times at home uh, with food that was but but not it isn't always and I think going to my grannies as well I've got two grannies my maternal grandmother that was always quite melancholy because they lived in a council house and I went to see them quite often stayed with granny for several days and she put a great deal of effort into making my grandpa's supper every evening but you know they just they didn't have much money so when she went shopping she'd always say to me if she was going to get a piece of shin of beef, for example, okay, we need to count this out. So we would go through her purse and count out the money for the shin of beef. And then we would walk there to the butcher's, which was on a house estate, 
So it actually was as kind of good value as you could find in right in the middle of the time. And she would count the same bits of the same coins out onto his counter. And I just I kind of always used to feel kind of like sorry for her. And then my grandpa, when he came home, and it was just really old fashioned. She'd done all this cooking and and he just came and sat down at the table almost as soon as he got in. So that would have been about six o'clock. And he ate very hungrily. And in a way that it was more than hunger, it was kind of like some sort of need as well. Mm. I mean, he really enjoyed his food, but there was something else there. Something I saw in my father as well, actually. You can tell people where they kind of like, oh, they go so fast when the meal is put down. And it's not just about stopping the hunger. It's about something else as well. We normally ask about school food, but actually what I want to ask you about specifically is the French exchange that you went on when you were at school. Because <gasps> that was hugely formative for you, wasn't it? Massive. And I, that was the first time I'd ever gone abroad. We'd never been abroad before. And I tried to organise it through school. And nobody at that time did these kind of things, especially if you were from, you know, Northern Ireland, actually because there were no flights out of Belfast to most places. So we had to go to Dublin to get to Paris. And it was, yeah, it was considered a bit, oh, that's a bit advanced. But I was very determined to do it. And the stay was really formative in that they lived in Drew, but they also had a place in the country. I mean, that sounds grand, but a really rickety little stone place that didn't even have a bathroom opposite uh, where the, the man of the house, his grandma lived. So it was called La Motte-en-Blaisie, and it was right near to colombe les Eglise. And I like very soon realised that cooking and thinking about food and making food was the thing that went on the entire day. And my friend, Clotilde, just 15, same age as me, and I had been a really keen cook at home, but she knew more. I mean, Clotilde could just do everything, you know, prep, chew, uh, all sorts of things. And the first, I mean, after breakfast, we would start to talk about lunch. And that was usually something like pork chops, kind of marinated in olive oil and garlic and Ebbe de Provence. And they did that on a barbecue. But it wasn't barbecuing. It was just another place to cook. It was outside. That, that was it. And it was like a barbecue that you pick up at a petrol station. There was nothing fancy about it at all. But my God, those tasted good. And salad as well. I think when I came back from there, green salad was one of my favourite dishes, and it still is, actually. Green salad, so leaves only. No cucumber, no tomatoes, and I made, I learned to make the vinaigrette in the bottom of the salad bowl, and she would say, she was quite funny, she'd say, put in the vinegar, and then you put in the Dijon, and then huile d'olive. Toujours France, toujours de France. So we used Provençal olive oil. And I don't know, she tasted it obviously as she went along. And I, I could see that, but even more, I could taste the difference. Because at home, we'd been making dressing in a jam jar with sunflower oil, and there was just no comparison. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think that was a, my favorite bit of any meal was when the main course had gone and we had that interlude of salad and bread. And I just thought, this is so civilized. I mean, for want of a better word, it was kind of making all the ordinary things important and joyous. I thought that was, I mean, I went, I did go home a changed person. I'd always been very keen on cooking and I'd sort of started making sweets and things like that when I was about six or seven. 
but living with it all day long uh, was a major thing. The food was just really high quality. They weren't rich at all. This was ordinary home food and they paid so much attention to it. And you've written about how after that you you sort of travelled the world through cooking at a point when you couldn't actually travel the world. Talk to us about like the, the logistics of that. How were you going about discovering those cuisines that weren't commonplace at that point? I tried to find everything I could in my mum's small collection of cookbooks. And if you had the Hamlin old colour book and you had Cordon Bleu set, and there was a huge Cordon Bleu set, there was actually quite a lot to feed your imagination. But also the thing about food in other places came from fiction. So um, the Little House books, The Little House on the Prairie, all of those, we were read all of those at school and then I read them all again at home. They're just they're stuffed with food. I mean, roast figs. I got the idea about writing roast figs because of Little House on the Prairie and because I found out what sugar snow was. That, the whole scene where they have to pour boiling maple syrup into the snow, I just thought that was magical. And again, they dealt with, it was kind of like plain food and they did a lot of putting up. You know, I remember the, the two girls always being in the attic, sitting on pumpkins, looking at all the jars and stuff that had been put up for winter. Um, I don't know. I just had this, I just had a hunger to know about food and to know about what was eaten elsewhere. Eventually things like Mother Jaffrey came on, on the television while I still lived at home. And it was kind of, that was just incredible because I could never even think of what Indian food, because at that time there were no Indian restaurants in Northern Ireland. There was no access to it at all. And I got, I've still got the, the book that went along with the TV series, and it's completely, it's a mess on the cover. Uh, because I just looked in it so often, if you go through, I've got little notes kind of like saying, can't get, can't get, that was to do with the ingredients. So I would go to Belfast to see my friend Audrey, who lived there, and we would go to this place called Scassifras, which was a a kind of herb and spice shop, except that it was also full of, you know, it was a bit hippie. And um, there was a record shop above, uh, which is where, I mean, that was where kind of like Belfast Punk started in the record shop above. But you would, you just tried to get everything that you could, basically. And when you left home, you went to Oxford to study English literature and language. And then from there, you went into television. There the plan was not food at that point, despite this. There was clearly a, a passion and interest. I know, as in your food writer was not the plan. I know you were working in food television. How did it come about that you began food writing? It was not a plan at all. It was never an intention. And even as I was making the decision, it was kind of taking out of my hands in a way. I had wondered about being a chef. I used to go out and visit the Memorial Camp Saison when I was in Oxford and read the menu. I mean, I used to go out there in this crummy car with my boyfriend in the rain and stand there and read what he was doing. And I kind of had, I did really have fancies of me being in, in, you know, chef's whites and everything. But at that stage, people who were going to university or had been to university, they they didn't cook. They didn't become chefs. It's not like now. So I went off and, and did other things. I joined the BBC after, well, I went to journalism school after, Oxford and then I joined the BBC and I went on that prestigious assistant producer scheme and those places are very hard to get and also funny enough I really loved television I mean that was the one I mean it was when I look back on television then 
there was less of it, but they were really healthy and days because there are things you just wouldn't have missed because you couldn't record them. And also, we, we didn't have a cinema. So at Christmas, we would watch all of the clips of Disney films, you know, on that one programme that went out, was broadcast usually on had Boxing Day, I think. So television was another way to get other places, I think. Mm. And then what happened was I worked in television. I worked in it for 14 years, actually, altogether. But when I was 29, I had a nervous breakdown. And I kind of like didn't see that coming, but yet had always seen it coming, if you know what I mean. I struggled with depression without really knowing what it was, and it had never been diagnosed. So I went to hospital for a while, and I just thought, because that had happened to me, I thought I deserved something I really wanted to do. So it was a gift to myself. So people thought it was a bit bonkers because I had a, I had a job at the BBC and I left it. Well, in fact, actually, at first, I just asked if I could take unpaid leave and do one term at least. And on the second day, at least, I asked if I could do the whole year and I had to resign. And it was one of the happiest periods of my life to kind of like to be doing stuff all day that you love and you're curious about. And you go back to yourself being educated years after you've been at university. I thought it was fantastic. I learned, I kind of had to start again. There were things that I thought I did quite well, like my pastry, which actually in reality wasn't that good. So I went back to the beginning and learned all the basic things and still the stuff that I say, um, you know, when I'm writing a recipe, which is, you know, to dry the meat if you're going to brine it, because otherwise it will just steam, it won't fry. You know, I put that in every recipe like that that I write because it's not something people know, yeah. but I never let go of what I learned really. And I also did extra things. I mean, I was a real, I was a real leaf swap. When I got home, <laughs> I would make, I, I really was, I would make more notes from the notes and I would be looking things up and I kept it all in a file. So I was kind of like the ultimate leaf student because. I wanted to know the kind of like next stage of things as well as what they were teaching me. But anyway, mm. I went back to TV because I had had a little, you know, you're all sent off to do these little trials. And I had worked in um, 192 in Kensington under, yeah, it was, it was Dan, whatever his name was at that time. Anyway, it was after Alistair Little was there. And I thought that a restaurant kitchen was awful. I mean, it was just like, you get pairs delivered that are rock hard, you don't know what to do with them. But you have to do something because you need them for the menu you're using the pudding on, which you kind of like planned. And also things like, oh my God, I was so slow at filleting fish. Um, so, and it was, you know, it was quite shouty and it was very hot. And also, mm -hmm. you know, you could tell very quickly that the chefs weren't, they weren't necessarily enjoying this. This was their job. And secondly, it wasn't like sitting at home and going through your cookbooks and thinking, oh, I think I'd like to do that. And all the things I kind of like love doing. I mean, I did this when I was in, in the hospital after the breakdown. One of the things that really cheered me up was doing menus. I had a notebook, I did menus. And then also I kind of like to think, okay, who might choose that? I tried to make them work so that somebody who started with such and such a starter, there would be an obvious main course for that person. Um, so I liked structuring those and thinking about them, but I just, I wasn't going to be able to hack it. I just, just wasn't going to be able to work in restaurants. At that stage, you went back to TV. 
Yeah, I went back and I was making kind of human interest documentaries, which I really loved, and arts documentaries. I worked on a book program, which I loved as well, but lots of things. I only did, I think, three series of Bird with You, Friendly Whittingstall, and that was way back in the day. So that was TV dinners. But that was incredibly interesting because it was cooks and it was what, you know, it's a lot about finding out about people and why they do this. Going into people's homes. Exactly. I mean, I thought that was just terrific. I was very interested. But I didn't want to stay doing cookery programs because apart from the, if you've got a a kind of um, documentary put in, that's great. Actually filming recipes, utterly boring. It's just, you know, wide shot, then it's kind of like, okay, post up of everything where you have to make sure that it matches the wide shot. So there's a lot of that and it is quite dull. And also television eats you up. The days are really long. I mean, you can be getting up at six o'clock and you can be wrapping then at two o'clock the next morning and then having to go and get a little bit of sleep and then, you know, filming again the next day. So it is, it is very draining. I don't think people realise how, how tough television is. And what happened then was that I had Ted. I had my first child. And I went back to television. I went back to, I was working on a series for Channel 4 about the British Garden in the 20th century. It was very interesting. It wasn't depressing. It was a nice thing to do. But I was out visiting a place in one of those the kind of small towns that grew up after the war. And I was listening to what she, talking to her about what she'd done with her garden and what her husband was now dead, what they'd done together. And it was a Friday afternoon and I was looking at my watch and I was kind of thinking, oh God, hurry up, hurry up. I wasn't interested in what she was saying. I wanted to get back to my child. And so I went back to, I stayed in TD for six weeks and I tried to do it and I went off here and there and everywhere. I was also never home before nine o'clock at night. But that thing, I can remember feeling that I wasn't interested in what she had to say. And a feeling of dread went through me because it's like, if you feel like that, you can't do television. Not that kind of television. So I had an eight month old and I thought I'm going to try and write about food because people told me I should be doing that anyway, though it had never been part of the plan. So I looked at the magazines that I liked and I looked at Hines and Garden and I could see who worked there. It was a woman called Leonie Highton and I could see how they did their pieces, you know, the topics that they used. And I could also see how they were actually laid out on the page and the typeface they used and everything. And because I'd worked in television, I was kind of like, you know, alert about all this stuff. So I did a piece for her and I sent it completely on spec. And I remember she was telling me about the first, they did that actual piece and she was telling me about the photography shoot. And she said, well, um, he said he'd never heard of you. And I, and I said to him, well, you know, I think she's very good. So that was that, that was a kind of start. So initially I did small things. Until, and then I, I wrote down, I got a job ghosting other people's books as well, which I wasn't expecting. I didn't even know that went on. And um, But eventually, you know, my, I kind of like my workload increased. And then I had a meeting with the, the publishers, who I'm still with, actually. And I wasn't sure why she wanted to see me. She never made it clear. I thought, oh, probably going to talk to me about, you know, more books to mm-hmm. ghost. And at the end of the meeting, because we got on quite well, I just said, you know, there's a book I'd like to write. And she said, what is it? And I explained about the idea behind Crazy Water Pickle Lemons to her, which was about 
put in ingredients that I dreamt about and read about and had also eaten since, but basically in Northern Ireland I was growing up. And you know, kind of things like pomegranates, you know, you could you would only get this at Christmas. So pomegranates were like they could it might as well be baubles as anything else. So there's a lot of this stuff around which I thought, imagine, which could really kind of, you know, enrich a child's imagination. And I was still kind of holding on to that. So I thought about crazy water pickle lemons and how the things would be kind of magical. And there were also going to be recipes that worked in a way that you didn't understand, like that boiled orange cake that's Middle Eastern, and also quinsalioli from Catalonia, which had a big effect on me, actually, when I visited there. So there's going to be a collection of all this stuff. And um, she bought it there and then. I mean, she didn't make it quite clear, but she said, I'm going to go back and talk to them now. And I went home and I did a mood board, which I was kind of used to doing sometimes for television, um, about what the feel of that book should be. And I photocopied, you know, magazines, kind of like the feel I wanted the book to have, the kind of food that would be in it. I even, you know, ludicrously, choose different type fonts and that kind of thing. So I came in, gave this to her. So she took it to a, a sales meeting. And it actually looked as if the book already existed because I had all this stuff laid out. So, you know, and the rest is history. And I had no idea at the time how hard it was and it is now to get a book deal. I was kind of, yeah, very naive, but I just could not believe my luck. Since then, you've written, I mean, I couldn't even put a number on the, the recipes that you've written, both within and, and outside of cookbooks. Has the way in which you approach recipe development or or approach whole books changed significantly since that first one do you know not really mm. i mean i can now think i mean because i think without sounding emails i think that's a great book it's really lovely it's it's a bit earnest but it's very sincere <laughs> and the recipes are lovely and they work mm. and and what when i need it now i kind of because, you know, I'm always trying hard with my writing. That's a good thing about being a writer. You can always get better. And they're always kind of like, I don't know, there's always kind of routes that you can go down that you haven't before. And I read it recently and I just thought, I was, a, I kind of was already a good writer. But in actual fact, I didn't feel that I could have that title until I won the James Award. I've got real problems with people who've kind of like, I don't know, they've written kind of like, three recipes for avocado and they're referring to themselves as a writer. I know that's what they do do, but I had to go a long way before I thought of myself as that. And I think it's something you still kind of have to maintain. And I still get a bit embarrassed about it because I'm not a writer of fiction. I'm a writer of cookbooks. And I don't want to say that that's lesser, but fiction, I suppose, is what I would really like to do. Mm. in among the cookbooks I'd love to do that but you know what it's like when you write cookbooks you get on and you write the next cookbook plus the thing is that even when I decide okay I'm going to give six months to fiction and I'm going to write I'm going to do my notes I'm going to observe I'm going to you know, sit in the bus and listen to people I will start a notebook with that in it okay and I will make some observations and by page three I've thought of a dish that I want to cook I think <laughs> and I cannot stop that I literally can't stop that. And I don't know why somebody said, where do you get all the ideas? And it's a bit like the Irish writer, maybe Vinci, said mm. to me once, because I asked her where she got all her stories. And she said, if you were sitting in a or Dublin and listening to people, 
why wouldn't you get a story? You'd be having to try to avoid them. And that's, that's the same with me and, and food. I just think it comes back in my head. And even when you're, there is a kind of, I don't know if you felt it, but there is a kind of slightly horrible time at the end of a book when it's been exhausting and everything's been done. The last shoot day has happened where I feel pretty dreadful. I mean, I feel really tired. And it's not an anticlimax so much as just being a bit numb. And I think during those kind of like two or three days, I think, oh my God, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna want to do this again. So I'm gonna have to think of something else. And I've now learned that there's no point in paying any attention to that because it will come back. And also I nearly always have two books in my head beyond the book I'm actually writing. Then I get very excited about about there'll there'll be another subject about going back to that. The only thing I think of is that I write a mixture of quite commercial books which are empowering. That's the point of them. So the books about the chicken, the book about simple food. And I'm really lucky because I am allowed to do those books and, and the more literary ones as well. And I, I don't know many people who can get away with that, really. And you would think that the commercial books would be easier to do. They're not at all because they also have to have some import and some meaning and some attachment to people eventually. That's what you hope. And I also, I love those books because those are the ones that people will keep in the kitchen and will enable them to cook. And when it comes to kind of recipes, that that is what I am all about. I think everybody can cook. I don't think you need to learn difficult techniques, even though I did. I think if you can turn the oven on, if you can weigh ingredients, if you can read, you can cook. Tell us about the decision to reissue an older book. It's it's 20 years old now, Race Fig Sugar Snow, isn't it? Mm. Where did that decision come from? I We were intending always to revisit them because they're so old and because I think that Roast Figs and also Crazy Water are kind of classics now for people who love cooking and love food. They mm. never went out of print, um, but we decided then to let them deliberately go out of print so that we could redo the whole thing. So Crazy Water will come next year. It just seemed like a good time. I'm still working on a book which will be out for quite a few years called North. As I say, in the last four years, health just got in the way of my entire life. So I had to step back a bit. I mean, step back quite a lot, actually. And it was impossible at one stage for me to work on it at all. I could work on things that were existing, and I could do my telegraph column. But when I when I would get into research for North, I'd fall asleep. And that's all I can say, is that I wasn't able to fight the tiredness that I felt. And that went on for about 18 months after and I was in the ICU. You couldn't travel during that period either? No, I wasn't allowed to. I mean, they wouldn't even let me go to Scotland because, because I've got an autoimmune disease. And if I'd had another flare-up, as they described them, um, I'd have to be taken off in an emergency, a kind of a um, helicopter ambulance and delivered to Aberdeen. So that didn't sound like a good plan. So I only travelled again last year for the first time, and I was actually able to finish uh, the travelling for North. I went to Shetland and I went to Northern Germany, and it was just that was like a shot in the arm because I just kind of like I was flooded again with just enthusiasm. So it's going on. I'm back doing it. But in the meantime, it looked like this is the perfect time to go back to the early books. And also, you know, 
I rose very slowly in terms of being someone who's known. I was around for years and people didn't know who I was. And I'm not complaining about that because I think a slow burn is quite a good way to become a writer because nobody really noticed me. And I just kept on improving, you know, and I could see it, but I didn't even know whether other people were reading my stuff or not. So there's this whole kind of mass of people who have never read either book or even heard of them. Hmm, so, came to go around chicken or oven to table. Exactly. And stuff. Chicken yeah. was a sort of breakthrough book for me, actually, because it was, I mean, I'd always wanted to write it, but it was pretty commercial and hmm. it sold very well. But yeah, it seems, it sounds kind of like, oh, you re- reissue them and it will make a bit of money. And it really wasn't because, and the publishers didn't put it that way either. I really thought this was a good time to redo it. And I think there are books really worth reading. I mean, I was just looking through, this is why I'm even about my own stuff. I was just thinking through those things before we started talking. And I was thinking, God, that is a good recipe. You know, that kind of way. And kind of thought, oh, people ought to have this. So it's about putting it out there again and to a new audience. And I love the connection. I mean, you can get it more easily these days because of Instagram and stuff. But it used to be, as a writer, you wrote in a kind of like bubble and that didn't matter. And I enjoyed that. And the stuff went out into the world and you didn't know who used it or if nobody used it or if they bought the book and I had to gift it to someone else because they thought it was crap. So I just think it's a good time to have done that. It's a good time to have done that. And being, I think the early books were kind of like Norse is a different beast. And that it's actually harder because I've made it harder and I'm thinking much more about it. And I've travelled for 25 years for that book. Um, but Roast Things was slightly a precursor to the book that will come out in 2026. That's where I got the thing about North. And the book, that book was published as well because of childhood reading. You know, Hans Christian Andersen. And I just, I was, I was really intrigued by those little horses, you know, the little wooden horses they have. And also, God, this is how old I am, um, on television, when there were no proper programs on, which was kind of all day long, basically, in those days, they used to run these films, which were called trade test transmission films. And they were for people in television stores to have something on the screen and to kind of like fix their colours. And they went, these went out kind of like on a loop repeatedly. And there was one about making glass in Sweden. And I just thought, oh my God, this place is amazing. Look at this snow, look at this glass. And the kind of idea of North, I came from a Northern place myself, Northern Ireland, and I liked, I wanted to go further North. I had a huge thing about Scandinavia in those days, which never went away, but you weren't going to go to them because it was so expensive. I mean, well, they didn't actually bring cheap flights to Stockholm until I think I was like, I don't know, I was quite old actually. And then I thought, oh, freedom, freedom. But that whole thing of going to the North, going to light, going to snow, going to a white place. I mean, it also has very negative connotations as well. And that's part of North. It's not cute. North isn't cute. Mm. And it's hard to do. But doing North Stakes Sugar Snow was a kind of introduction to that because I looked at the cuisines of places that have ended up being in North. But also, I just like that food. There is kind of, it's not obvious in all of the dishes, obviously. But there is a particular kind of food that's cooked in snowy places. And it's not just because you need something that's cosy and warming and robust. It's because they can be cut off a bit. Like, I know there's a 
people could ski into the Sampoir. But in if you look at the northeast corner of Friuli, where I got snowed in one year because we had an accident with a snowplow and we, we didn't have any choice but to stay there. The snow was so thick and bad. And the, the stuff that was eaten there hadn't changed for years. I mean, moat goose was a thing. They have their own goulash. They use poppy seeds. They use horseradish. And that's particular to that area. But also, it's partly because of the snow. You know, it's it's kind of, it's rib-sticking stuff. And that's true of many of the places I visited and many of the recipes in that book. You're right. It's obviously not cosy, but it is rib-sticking. And there is a certain amount of of necessary comfort in, in that kind of food because it, it is literally designed to warm and to fill. What, yeah. what is comfort food for you when you're not necessarily recipe developing, which yeah. I, I know it's not a huge amount of your time, but if you were able not to recipe develop, what do you go to for comfort? Oh my God, every time. It's really funny because when you're not developing a recipe, I always go to look for my notebook because I can't, kind of like take, if I'm testing, I take things down obviously. And when I find it, it's like, oh, I don't have to get this recipe. <laughs> I make chicken with tarragon. That is kind of like a real go-to. Okay, boys, we're going to have this. Or it actually, it will always be chicken mm. if it's for all of us. Or it will be roast chicken with bread sauce and, and roast winter vegetables. You know, I do it quite often on a Sunday night. But it will be chicken and it will be something that's not too complicated. And it will be the kind of dish, like chicken with tarragon and green beans and little potatoes, that I will feel like. I don't know, this real sense of ease and happiness. And I'll think about I'll think about my days in France, to be honest with you, because that was kind of something that I came home with, that idea of cooking chicken with tarragon. And just to finish, what is your desert island meal, your your ultimate meal? How many courses can I have? As many or as few as you want. You can match drinks, you can have pudding. It, we are in your hands, Dana. And um, I would like longestine. With homemade mayonnaise. I would like some kind of stuffed pasta dish. Then I would like to have roast chicken in multiple forms. I don't know which one I'd particularly <laughs> choose, but that would be there. Um, I think I've had enough of my rich stuff. I would really like grass and dipping ones on the side, but I think that would be going overboard. That's overkill, yeah, sure. And then I would have, can you believe this? I would have really, really simple stuff. I would have... Um, Depends what time of year it was, but I would have baked fruit. I would have one of the things I started cooking years ago when I had children and no time to do anything. I would have stone fruit actually cooked in some white wine and cassis in the oven with a little drizzle of cassis acid at the end. But I want them to shrink. I don't Mm -hmm. want them to fall apart. I don't want them to collapse, but I want them to have had the, you know, the sweetness intensified by the fact that they're, you know, in the oven and it's very important in that kind of dish to put or you'll know this to put the liquid kind of not have it coming up over them you just have to have enough under them so that they kind of that they bake and become charred and some of the sugary bits kind of like crystallized so i love that dish you know peaches plums uh, nectarines whatever else like if i had if there was californian fruit available um i'd, I'd have that as well but yeah all of those baked and then I want to eat it cold and I want to have creme fraiche I and forgot you, about cheeses I should do cheeses but you can have I cheeses think, well if I can have cheeses then I would have samosla mm-hmm. a good goat's cheese and both four and would you like anything to drink alongside 
my favorite i've got two favorite grape varieties and places i love the union i mean i know everybody thinks it's big and blousy and kind of you know they're a bit like it now as they used to be about chardonnay who cares but <laughs> i think it tastes of apricots and tropical fruit and it's big and blousy in a good way so i would have so i'd have something from the Rhone, or i'd have something from the new world but i'd like the Viognier to be the main grape um, and the other possibility is an alsace pinot gris i went to alsace one year and I went to Domaine Weinbach. It's bears is made, they make the verts and everything, but it's just made by women. And I went there because it was just women who were doing it. And they all, you could see there were rules. They had the one who was interested in business. They had the ones who talked about, you know, the wine and how they made it. And it was a fan. I didn't, you know, there were times in the past when you could do these things, you could just turn up and you don't have to book an appointment or anything. And great places like that would just keep filling your glass or another glass of another wonderful wine. So I bought quite a lot of that and came home because we'd driven there. Um, but it's, it's quite hard to get here. But that that's another fantastic wine. I might have some port afterwards, but it would have to be vintage. <laughs> what a perfect place to end. <laughs> Dana, thank you so much. And Dana Henry's book, Rose Pig, Sugar Snow, is available now. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. <laughs>